Welcome to Movie Maniacs. Mike Rags and Chuck Curry discussing the greatest movies of all time and all the new films in theaters and streaming that you need to know about. Like us, rate us, share us. Now, here are your hosts, Mike Rags and Chuck Curry. My name is Chuck Curry, alongside my co-host, Kenny B., once again filling in for Matt Mike Rags. This is Movie Maniacs, heard on the internet, heard on W-O-W-O, Wo-Wo, out of Fort Wayne, Indiana, every Saturday night at 10 p.m., and also, Ken? On Cool 98.5 WXPM in beautiful Phoenixville, Pennsylvania. It is good to be beautiful. Uh, Once again, we talk about anything and everything pertaining to the world of motion pictures, movies, television, so whatever else is on our mind. This week we're going to go over some uh, box of total, some movie news, some industry uh, headlines, and uh, for our top 10 list, which always anchors the uh, second half of the program, we're talk about some of our favorite movies, our top 10 list, or favorite films released in the year of 1993. And I gotta say, Ken, looking at that uh, body of work from 93, it's quite a good year, and I usually could have came up with a top 25. Uh, not just the top 10. That would be something very hard-pressed to do in 2023 to come up with 25 really good films because I think the industry has really changed dramatically over that uh, time span. Uh, I did get a chance to see one movie uh, this week. It was uh, it was The Good Place, uh, which is Zach Brack's new movie, the guy who did Sunshine State, the guy who did Scrubs. He directed it, stars uh, Florence Pugh and Morgan Freeman, and before I get into uh, that, I just want to say, Ken, how you doing? Anything on your mind pertaining to the world of movies or anything else? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing pretty well, and yes, I agree. It was a very, uh, it's, a, it's a very plentiful year. There was something over, and I realized they weren't all theatrical releases in the U.S., but there was something over 3,000 movies made in 1993, according to Wikipedia. Wow. And in making my list, and I always try not to duplicate what I think you're going to have, um, okay. It's it's funny where you have a list where, well, a list ought to be on your list, but a list isn't on my list. But we'll get to that in a little while. Um, one thing that I did this week is I am finally the last person in the world who saw Top Gun Maverick. And, oh, cool. All right. And, and I'm going to be Rex. Better late than never. What's your opinion? I'm going to be Rex Reed. Um, it it would have been great as if it was the first movie if I hadn't seen Top Gun if I hadn't seen Iron Eagle and things like that, um, I really wish if, if they really wanted to get exciting with fight sequences, actually don't show me a close-up of two jets. Show me them from far away because that's when you can actually see the movement. But of course, they don't do that because half the movements are impossible. But I had a, I had a couple of big problems with them. One was in, oh, one was in script development. Uh, first of all, we have no idea what the relationship between Tom Cruise and Jennifer Connelly was. We get a reference to Don't Break Her Heart this time. That's about it. You know? Okay. Uh, she's, you know she's not Kelly McGillis. Um, they, really? Okay. No, in the sense that we there, we knew his relationship, but this one's a yeah, new, uh, totally yeah, okay. new relationship. 
Um, yeah. And and we know why they didn't bring Kelly McGillis back because she's not suitable as the female lead for Tom Cruise anymore. They kill off Meg Ryan's character off off screen, of course. Uh, but um, we we don't really we have all these young hotshots come in. We don't know the backstories because we didn't see them when they went through Top Gun School. Um, it's totally unbelievable. You have a top secret mission. So what what happens? All these people come and they first thing they do is they all meet up at the bar. Uh, that wouldn't happen. They would be brought into Top Gun School. They would be confined to barracks. Nobody would know that they were there. But if there are any spies around there, and there ought to be, because it's a you know it's Top Gun School, they now see Maverick and all these other people showing up. They got to be saying, "What the hell is going on?" And you know, I, I didn't like the lack of character development, and some of it was just so f- way out in forest school. There's no planet. I don't care how good you are. An F-14 does not take down two Generation 5 airplanes. The The difference is so stark, so fantastic. So I had to get rid of, get over all that. And then it was like, the first one, I was into the characters. We were in, I mean, hell, we liked Goose and Iceman's rivalry so much that we still enjoyed it. When In this one where, you know, Iceman is basically Goose's... Uh, guardian angel but uh the these characters because we didn't see them from day one we don't see them develop uh and it's just to me there were so many things that were now this isn't how it would happen no actually an admiral would not be making the call on whether he was continuing or not in in an action like that it would be the secretary of defense at a minimum so i had some troubles with the story and i had some trouble saying "Mm, this is something new so if it had been if it had not been Top Gun number two, I don't think it would have been as successful. And it reminds me that's in that sense, it is Rocky and Creed. It's the old we 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 go to that movie because of the first generation. But I think you'll agree, Creed, from what you've told me, of those movies probably develops a new character and a new storyline better than Maverick uh, Top Gun did. I like, you know, I think the majority of people, it's interesting that, you know, obviously movie going is subjective. Uh, and I liked, obviously, the first Top Gun, but I like this one better. And I'll tell you why, because, uh, and again, I talked about this on the year before, this felt to me like Tom Cruise's The Shooters with John Wayne. He comes in, he's a more mature character, uh, and I think that maturity of the character really uh, grounds the proceedings, and it, and it does have a very reflective... Uh, type feel, at least for me, when when I watched it, revisiting, uh, understanding his youth, he's a different uh, type character because the years of experience have grown on him. I got to be honest with you, I've never been one of those moviegoers that does and an, an, uh, analyzes every aspect of of, of, of the machinery, uh, why things are believable or not believable. I just went along for the ride with the character, and I thought Tom Cruise was terrific. Uh, I, I thought.
at the box office. But there you have it. That's why uh, movie-going uh, analysis or, or criticism uh, is, is to each their own, as to say. So I got a chance before and, I go but, over but, box office. And also, also and, Chuck, it tells us once again, and I, here I'm talking about myself, tells you once again that a very enjoyable, a very popular movie might not be technically the best movie. And that's an, that, you know, that's an important distinction. It was very enjoyable, but if you looked at it from a technical level, it might not have been there, but very much different than 1993, which I'm going to foreshadow, where sure. the best movie may have, been, may have been one of the top 10 greatest movies of all time. You know, just uh, the difference. I, I can't. I can't disagree. So, okay, I, I did get a chance to see this movie, A Good Place. It's not really performing at the box office, simply because this is not the type of film that people pay to see in movie theaters. It saw Florence Pugh, Morgan Freeman, uh, again, directed by Zach Braff, who did Sunshine State. This is a very dour, uh, somewhat of a downbeat movie that has a nice connection between the two lead characters in Florence Pugh and Morgan Freeman. She plays in the beginning of the film a woman who is set, uh, who, who you see her engagement party, she's sort of happy-go-lucky. Uh, next scene, she's in a car with her uh, future uh, uh, sister-in-law and husband. They wind up getting in an accident. Something not good happens. I don't want to give complete spoilers away, but ultimately she winds up uh, connecting with the family of her uh, future uh, sister-in-law, the father being Morgan Freeman, in a very interesting way. She goes through some dependency issues in terms of drug and alcohol use. Uh, this is not a movie that's going to make you feel great or feel good, but the acting is really good. I think Florence Pugh Flor- Flor- uh, is already solidifying herself as one of the A-list actresses in the business. She is really, really uh, good on screen. Morgan Freeman, I, at his age 85, I thought, ah, you know, it's just going to be Morgan Freeman going through the motions here, but the second half of this film, Ken, he gets to really flex his acting chops and he gets to sink his teeth into some really good uh, dramatic uh, material, which I, I liked. I'd give it like a 7 out of 10. Uh, again, I don't, would, I'm not going to tell people to run to movie theaters to see it, but if you get a chance to see it, I, I think uh, it's well worth your time. Now, in box office totals uh, in general here, number one movie over the weekend, John Wick 4, as predicted, although it did beat its tracking, $73.5 million for a hard R uh, action franchise, the best in the franchise so far. Uh, that is a really good number. Good for Keanu Reeves, who, again, as we stated, has really uh, emerged from the ashes uh, again, uh, solidifying and resurrecting his career with his John Wick character. Uh, he did say in an interview and sort of hinted that maybe it would be fun to, for him to reprise his, his uh, part uh, in the Speed franchise. I'd love to see a Speed 3 bring back him and Sandra Bullock. I think that would be a big box office hit, and the timing is right to do that. But the studio, I think Lionsgate, is uh, already prompting for a John Wick 5. I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon, but they are doing a spin-off movie in that overall franchise called Ballerina with Anna Diamasi uh, as the uh, lead in, in that spin-off world. So it's going to be a lot of the John Wick universe, I think, going forward. Uh, number two is Creed 3, 10 million in weekend number four. Film's done 146 million to date domestically, uh, which I believe is the biggest uh, grossing Rocky or Creed film to date. Of course, you have to count inflation in that number. Shazam, Fury of the Gods, 
uh, $3 million in week at number two, a 61% drop-off week-to-week, just $46 million in 10 days of release. For whatever reason, people uh, have rejected Shazam. I thought it was an entertaining family film, but families have not shown up the way uh, Warner Brothers DC has needed to. And I would say, Ken, overall, this will probably be the last we see of Shazam on the big screen. Not for quality, but simply because financially it will not be viable going forward. Scream 6 hit number 4, another $8.4 million, a 51% drop-off week-to-week, which is a good hold. $90 million in three weeks of release, that's a solid number. Producers and the studio already uh, putting together a Scream 7, and rounding out the top 5 with 65, the new uh, action movie, Dinosaur Time Travel, related with uh, Adam, uh, Adam, Adam Driver. Uh, 3.2 million, 20 million in three weeks of release. This will be a financial uh, failure, but I guess things could be worse. Now, hitting theaters this Friday. Let, let me ask you something before you go on to that, sure. Chuck. If you know, sure. because you talk about this every week, and I'm always here, how the heck do they do it? How do they come up with these tracking figures? I, you know, me and Mike have talked about this for a long time. That's a great question. I don't know, but in general, for the most part, I would say within a. 90% accuracy rate, uh, they are, they're accurate for the most part. Uh, you rarely see a big miss one way or another. If they say a movie's going to track at around uh, 90 million, it's pretty much, you know, in the upper 80s, low 90s. Sometimes you get a little bit of a blow past, uh, not a blow under. But uh, I guess they do some sort of, uh, I would guess they do some Fandango pre-sales and they do some sort of math formula based on that or a general consensus in, on internet polls. But uh, it's a good question. Uh, they do it because uh, they want to have a gauge of, of, of where, 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 where they are to uh, game plan uh, and adjust, I guess, marketing campaigns one way or another. But it is a good question. Now, Dungeons & Dragons, uh, uh, I think this is Paramount release with Chris Pine, getting really good reviews, uh, tracking around uh, a $35 million opening domestically. Students hoping good word of mouth propels out a little bit higher. Overseas, worldwide, uh, it's expected to do about $65 million total, but it's going to need good word of mouth and some legs to go into uh, profitability. Now that a week, uh, well, the next Wednesday, then you start getting into even more uh, uh, high-profile movies. Super Mario Brothers, which is animated voice of Chris Pratt, this movie's going to open, it's five-day tracking is around $90 million. I think that could blow past Expectations. I got a good feeling that this movie is going to be uh, pretty big and have legs for at least uh, a month. Ken, and also released next Wednesday is the movie Air, with uh, directed by Ben Affleck. It's a story of Nike and my, the Michael Jordan sneaker. Uh, Matt Damon uh, and Jason Bateman are in this film. Reviews are excellent. Uh, again, Ben Affleck as a director seems to always, for the most part, release a very solid product. It's going to be interesting to see how this fares as a box office, because it's a non-action, non-superhero movie. Uh, it does have Affleck, and it does have Matt Damon. It has a really interesting story. Did you see the trailers to this movie? I think it's a, it's a really interesting story to tell uh, as a feature. I have not. Let's see how this performs. I am looking forward to it. I, I, I must say that uh, I, uh, I, I, I really am. Before we bounce into some box office, uh, not box office, some movie news of interest, any any anything else you, you want to you want to uh, that you might have seen uh, or talk about? Yeah, well, a couple things. First of all, the the Italian American Anti Defamation League we will be mm-hmm. boycotting 
Super Mario Brothers because, you know, it's the Italian stereotype. The guys are plumbers. Um, I watched the Swedish version of two of the three of the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo trilogy. So okay. the, these are the ones in Swedish starring uh, Numi Page. Really and, and they did the American remake with Rona Mary and Daniel Craig, but, but, which I actually liked. Which yeah, I actually liked. But the thing that struck me was watching it because Numi is not overly attractive. She's built like a boy. And I'm just wondering if... It, it strikes me because I watch a lot of foreign movies that in a lot of countries, they seem to... They, they seem to cast actors and actresses for their acting ability far more than their looks as opposed to America. And I just wonder whether you've ever noticed that. Uh, I, I think it's just, I think the European look is, is a little bit... Uh, Different. I always, I always, it's always interesting when they do a, American remakes of, of foreign films. I know one. Uh, I mean, I know the the, the the girl with a dragon tattoo. That that remake, American remake, didn't fare as a box box office the way they wanted to. But I did like the film. Uh, so, so you know, it, it's always a dicey thing when you have something well reviewed that's foreign and then you you remake it here. But did you did you like those films? I, I actually did, and I actually, because she's not the most glamorous, and um, uh, I think that it, she actually was able to play that very dark character so exceedingly well. I mean, it had me scared. She actually, I started watching them because there is a uh, series on Netflix or yeah. or, or or on uh, pre, uh, Prime where she plays a mother of a of a child who goes to. Spain for a uh, ice skating competition, and she's actually a former Russian spy, and that's where I got into it because here's this very—I mean, she must weigh all of eighty pounds, and uh, she's uh, you know basically an action hero. And so I went. I said, "Hey, I gotta go back and watch the original uh, Dragon Tattoo movies. I liked them very much. I didn't have a problem with the fact that they were subtitled, and uh, I really enjoyed. It. I might have mentioned last week." I'm not sure. I started watching a series called Night Agent on uh, Netflix. Absolutely recommended if you like espionage, CIA, FBI kind of stuff. Uh, just just a, a great movie uh, and a great... Uh, it's I think it's an eight-part series. It was intended to be a um, mini-series. They made it in, or a limited series. Uh, but I think they'll find a way to come up with a season two. It was a a very good, very action-packed, and some of these, the characters, the lead female antagonist in the movie was absolutely stunning in the way she looked just totally evil. I believe they have renewed that uh, series for a season, too. That's good news you like. And by the way, the actress in the movies you were talking about, Naomi uh, Ray Pace, who, who I like, and she was actually the, the female lead in Ridley Scott's Promiscuous, so she got, Correct. she's got a lot, a lot of work in her career, both international and uh, and American uh, films. So movie news of interest. I saw an interesting one yesterday on uh, Deadline Hollywood Daily, which is usually very accurate. In terms of Matt Reeves' Batman 2, which is getting ready to go into production in the next few months for a uh, 2024 October re release. Now, it appears that, uh, that, that the Penguin will once again, Colin Farrell's The Penguin, who was really good the first Batman movie, and they're going to do an HBO uh, series based on that character. He most likely will be part of it, but it appears 
that the character of Clayface, who's somewhat of an obscure, uh, maybe not in the comics, but in terms of live-action features, this has never been done. Clayface will be a big part of this Matt Reeves, the Batman 2, which means it's going to be interesting how they do this character in a more grounded uh, Batman movie. I, I, I do find it uh, intri intriguing. I have a lot of different thoughts on Matt Reeves, the Batman. I did not like it as much as Chris Nolan's Batman uh, trilogy, which I think is definitive, or even the Michael Keaton first uh, Tim Burton movies. But I did like the Batman. I thought it was a little bit too long. I thought Robert Pattinson's Bruce Wayne was a variation on the character that sort of perplexed me. But uh, it has grown on me on repeat viewing. So uh, it appears Clayface will be a big part of the Batman 2. That, according to Deadline Hollywood uh, Daily, not some of these gossipers who do these uh, internet blogs just uh, just speculate. Some other news of interest is uh, Quentin Tarantino stated in an interview that his 10th movie will be titled The Movie Critic. It will take place in 1977, but unlike some of the reports, it will not be about film critic Pauline Kael, but it will be about film criticism back in that decade, take place in 77, and be titled The Movie Critic. Uh, it will be Tarantino's 10th film. He has speculated this could be his last. He might retire. What would Quentin Tarantino do if he retired, Ken? I mean, he only makes one movie, say, every three years, so I'm sure he has some free time on his hands already. Uh, what is he going to do? Uh, grow grapes on a farm? I mean, keep making movies, Quentin. Well, you know, from, from somebody who retired very, very early, I always wonder why somebody who hits a, you know, even, even somebody like a, a uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, why do you keep making movies? Why don't you just spend the rest of your life dating 20-year-olds and then dumping them when they're 25? Is that what you, you recommend? Here's the thing. I read an article uh, recently, or it was a YouTube video, because I am curious on, I got to be honest with you, in, in when I watch, well, I'll give you an example. When I was watching the movie A Good Place yesterday, and I'm watching Morgan Freeman on the big screen, he's 85 now, and clearly he's, you know, he's not 60. Because you always saw Morgan Freeman, he never looked young, young. Because I think he started acting, for the most part, his breaks came in his, like, when he's like 38, 40 years old plus. He did a movie called Street Smart with Christopher Reeve. I remember him being the drug counselor in Clean and Sober. He was in the movie Teachers. He never looked young, young in a movie, right? But now he's 85. So I reflect when I watch aging actors on, in movies for whatever reason because I, I, you've come to the realization that well, like a flower we, 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 we're planted we're born right we grow uh, we look good and then we start to age and ultimately we start to wilt and there comes a point in life if, you, if you're fortunate or unfortunate enough whatever pick your poison you start living to 85, 90 and then you start to wilt there, 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 there is, you know, it's a reflection or, or there's somewhat of a sadness to a point, at least for me, uh, in, in that in that process. But I did re watch his YouTube video, and it did say, uh, this guy's on nutrition and, and aging, that people who retire uh, have more issues than people who keep doing what they do. Like a Spielberg, who now is in his upper 70s, the question is, I ask you, Ken, why should somebody who does something that they love, like a Clint Eastwood or Morgan Freeman, why should they re retire? Tell me the benefits of retiring versus doing what you love. And, and I'll, I'll throw in that, I mean, you throw in that as well as somebody like a Maggie Smith who 
we we hope yeah. will go on forever. But um, it, it depends on whether you retire and then do something else that you love, different. Okay. You know, you're, you're a lawyer, you retire, and you do stand-up comedy, you do radio, you try to get involved in movies, you start yeah. boating for the first time in your life, you move to the beach, you, you do things like that. If you retire and don't do anything, I, right. I agree. You're not sitting on. You don't sit on the couch and just watch. Right, the, uh, but the, I know the view when the price is right. A, a Morgan Freeman or a uh, yeah. a Judy Dench or a Maggie Smith, they keep right. doing it because to them, it. Yeah. They, I, I think they keep doing it because they want that legacy, and uh, they yeah. they are born entertainers. Well, it's why Mick well, Jagger tours. You know. Yeah, exactly. Or before we bounce into our next topic, or which ultimately at the end of the show is going to be our top ten favorite films from 1993. Or the reality is, human baby, human behavior, and the human mind is is an addictive. Uh, it, we're addictive people, and we get addicted to doing what we like. And to break that pattern for many people is extremely hard to veer into something else beside what is in your comfort zones beside what stimulates you or your love is not always easy to uh to to, to do so let's and, and you have, and you have somebody I, I only brought up maggie because she has a she was more famous in her career after 50 than she was pre-50 pre-50 she was really well known as a as a person on the british stage but it was really starting with things, and she did Gene Brody, but then she was quiet for a while here in the U.S. It was really yeah. starting with things like Sister Act, where all of a sudden Maggie Smith became a U.S. household name. And yeah, well, I, I'll tell you a quick story about Maggie Smith. When in 90, uh, 90, was it, 92, or nine, 91, actually, when I saw Hook, Spielberg's Hook on the big screen, now Maggie Smith played Wendy, uh, an older Wendy. And, and obviously they put makeup on her to make her look older. And I didn't realize that because I wasn't that familiar w with her for the mo most part. And then as years went by, sh she looked younger than she did in Hook. And I said, boy, like this woman must be doing some really good things nutritionally because she seems younger than she's ever been. And I always thought that, that was funny. But, you know, she was, you know, they, they made her look old uh, in Hook in 93. And she's gone on and it's 2023 and she's, She's still working in the, the, the industry, which I was doing, was uh, somewhat funny. Real quick, some movie, movie news and some uh, let's do this day in a TV movie history. CBS has renewed Blue Blood for a 14th season. Tom Selleck and the rest of the cast will be back. You know, Tom Selleck's legacy is really interesting because while he's done some, you know, respectable movie fare, I, I like a movie called An Innocent Man. That's my favorite Selleck movie. Uh, but in terms of TV... Magnum P.I. and now Blue Bloods. What a legacy on television. Two long-running, very well-respected, uh, uh, sought-after, watched TV shows. Thoughts on Tom Selleck, Ken? I, I agree about his television stardom, although I'll tell you the next episode of Blue Bloods I watch will be my first. Maybe... Really? Okay. Well, it's, it's network TV. I'm not a religious viewer, but when I do watch it, I got to tell you, I do respect Work. You know how I am okay. with network TV, but uh, no, yeah, very, very strong. I mean, he had a, he had a few movies that were memorable, but a very very strong TV career and very you, strong. You can TV you career. can actually um, have a nice uh, retirement and a nice legacy from television. So uh, oh, I think he's, I think he's made the smart move. No, I I agree with you. Uh, 
one other here at TV News of History. April uh, April 2nd, 1978, Dallas premieres on CBS. Now, I didn't realize this. Originally, when it premiered, Ken, Dallas was supposed to be a five-week short, what they call a short miniseries. Uh, people, you know, mostly knew Larry Hagman from I Dream of Jeannie, pops up as J.R. Ewing, uh, Ewing, the villain of the piece. People were blown away how layered and, and how menacing and also likable he was in that role. Very complex character, and the show winds up going on a 13-year run. I loved Dallas back in the day. I thought his last few seasons were not good, but overall, as iconic, well-produced, well-written uh, nighttime soap as there ever was. I, I was a big, big, big Dallas fan, and it's amazing just how slight the fame was of those people who were in the original ensemble cast. They didn't, they didn't cast a Joan Collins. I mean, Barbara Belgetti's because my mother is still yeah. alive. All I, yeah. Barbara Belgetti's was known for killing her husband with a leg of lamb in an Alfred Hitchcock episode. That yeah, was her claim really to fame. What's that? Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. Yeah. And uh, yeah. they acted like Ken Kershaw, who who played uh, Cliff Barnes, uh, fantastic on that show, The Rival, to uh, uh, J.R. Ewing, and you know, uh, obviously Patrick Duffy, uh, who was Bobby Ewing, was equal part. Yeah, I, I really, I, I, as, uh, Larry Hagman. Yeah, I really loved that show, and it was, uh, you know, it was really the okay. There was Peyton Place a long time ago, but it was the real, the first of the modern TV so, primetime soap operas. Yeah, I just want to bounce into two things before we get on to our main topic, which is our top ten movies of nineteen ninety three. This week in movie history, March 1976, uh, at, at the uh, at the Oscars. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest wins the Oscar for Best Picture. Now, here's why this is, to me, always sticks in my mind. And I love One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I think it's a terrific movie. Nicholson won the act, uh, Oscar for Best Actor. Louise Fletcher for Best Actress. Uh, uh, Milo's Foreman won the actor, won the uh, Oscar for Best Director. But um, Dog Day Afternoon was also nominated. Barry London, Nashville. And a movie called Jaws was nominated for Best Picture. And I always said to myself... In retrospect, even though I love Cuckoo's Nest, I sort of wish Jaws won the Oscar for Best Picture because I do believe it is the staple of movie greatness. It's one of the most popular watched movies of all time. It will always be one of the most popular movies watched going forward. I would have loved to see Jaws win the Oscar for Best Picture in retrospect. And here's what's also glaring about the 76 Oscar telecast. Robert Shore as Quint was not even nominated for Best Supporting Actor. George Burns won the Sunshine Boys, he was awesome in that movie. I don't, I'm not saying he should have won, but how in the world is Robin Shore not recognized back uh, for his work at Jaws from 75 at the 76 Oscars? To me, is one of the glaring omissions of all time uh, for the Academy. Oh, I, I agree he should have been nominated. I also would say that you know you have, you have a case where the better technical movie won the best movie Oscar over the movie that will be longer lasting and more popular. Yeah, but here's the, yeah, I agree. And, but, and again, I think that goes back to where the, the a little bit of a stuck up crowd of, of Oscar voters can't acknowledge the genre, the, the big genre movie Jaws, which changed the landscape of movies. It kicked the disaster movie trend to the side. Uh, it was the first massive movie released in the summer become to coin the phrase summer blockbuster played for two years in theaters just an iconic movie 
uh, an amazing experience back in the day. Uh, but Kuguznets ultimately did beat Jaws for the Oscar for best picture. Okay, Ken, let's bounce into our top ten favorite, all favorite. Don't have to be the best movies, but movies we thoroughly enjoyed. Uh, going to back in the theater in 1993 or watching these movies on repeat. I got to tell you, there's so many movies on this list. It was hard to come up with a, 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 a top uh, ten. I, I'll let you start your ten through five. Okay, and I, I did my my favorite because it's different than the top ten best. Because uh, yeah, me too. We wouldn't we wouldn't be debating at all about number one. I don't think um, number ten. Adam's Family Values. I really liked the. Adam's Family and the Adam's Family Values, the sequel in 1993, because it took the Adam's Family, that television series, made it darker, gave us, I think, one of the best dark actresses that we've had in Christina Ricci, who is now, of course, is in the TV series uh, Wednesday because, of course, it was her role. Uh, and uh, just just enjoyed that one. Uh, enjoy uh, any movie with uh, Christopher Lloyd and Angelica Houston. Raul Julia was great in it. So Adam's Family Values was my number 10. But well, let me just bounce into that. I, I agree with you. I, I didn't put it on my list, but I do like this move, this sequel, better than the original because I always felt the original, while I liked it, really was void of a script and it was more about sight gags and production value. The sequel had a script and it was funnier. It was really actually funny, and I, 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 it's a good pick. Okay, my, my number uh, number nine, we've got Charles Grodin, we've got Ben Kingsley, we have Sigourney Weaver. We also have Kevin Klein when he was still Kevin Klein. And that's Dave, that, that movie about the president and the president's uh, double, and uh, just a great movie. Uh, it's, a, it's a comedy, but it, it's a serious comedy, and uh, to me... Ivan Reitman, uh, you know, as a director, was at his best directing comedy. And uh, Kevin Klein, when he, you know, there was this period of time when I don't think there was a better quirky actor in Hollywood than Kevin Klein. Number eight. Uh, that's oh. a good pick. I saw her on my list. I love that movie. Okay, number eight. And this movie, I talk about Top Gun being unbelievable. Let me tell you something. Tax lawyers do not prepare tax returns. That's what accountants do. And we very seldom get seduced on a Caribbean beach. Maybe every other day, but, you know, it's not an everyday thing. But The Firm, which was one of the John Grisham novels, I think it was his first big novel. That was a 1993 movie, of course, with Tom Cruise, Gene Hackman, Ed Harris. Had a lot of twists and turns. I like it because... I read Grisham, and I was a lawyer. Number seven, Lemon and Mathau and Margaret, Burgess Meredith. Of course, Grumpy Old Men. I've mentioned this one before when we were talking about actors and actresses in one of our categories, and I really enjoyed Grumpy Old Men. My number six, I don't know if this movie, in fact, I don't think this movie would be as biting today. Because I don't think people today would have trouble with the premise of paying a million dollars to sleep with somebody's wife. You know, we have things like Ashley Madison. We have sugar daddy sites and the like. <laughs> no, I'm serious. 
I mean, indecent proposal, I think in 1993, we all said, oh, well, yeah, you know, man. that's terrible to sleep with, yeah. with somebody else for a million bucks. Yeah. I would bet today, we should be doing card sharks, whether it's over or under, but I would place the over under on that about 30% as the number of married men that would allow their wife to sleep with somebody for a million dollars. So Redford, Moore, and Harrelson, indecent proposal, is my number six. That, that, that's it. That's a good list. That, some of them, are, a couple on my list, some are not. Uh, good list. I, and I, I actually agree with you on that last uh, point. My number 10, I went with a movie called Summersby, which I'm a big fan of. I love Richard Gere. I thought his pairing with Jodie Foster here. He plays a Confederate soldier who goes back uh, to his uh, home after the war. He may or may not be this character uh, that uh, who was her husband. I, I just like this movie. Danny Elfman did the this, this score. I, I just think it, it's a it's a nice romance. Works on a couple different levels. And I'm a fan. I tell you a quick story, Ken, about Summersby. First, before the the first day I ever went on radio, which is almost close to almost 30 years ago, which is hard to be, believe. Uh, that night of the before the morning, I actually went on for the first time ever. I invited Mike Rags uh, to my condo and, and another buddy called, uh, his name was Steve uh, Trulio, and we watched Summersby on Laserdisc. Uh, and, and I enjoyed the heck out of it. It saw in theater of like three or four times. So that's my number 10. My let number let me say something about Summersby. Did, did you, re- yeah. you probably know Summersby is actually the Americanization of the yeah. French story of Martin Gare. So Mar- Mar- uh, my- Mar- so Martin Gare actually yeah. is a has been a French movie made several yeah, times. That's right, correct. You are correct. And, and it was also a a musical uh, by the guys who did Les Mis, and it came out at about the same time as Summersby. Just a little the musical, just a little bit of right. trivia. Very good. My number nine, Dragon, the Bruce Lee story. A quick trivia: This is the first movie I ever took uh, my my now wife. To see, she was my girlfriend. I, I love this movie. Jason Scott Lee, I thought was awesome as Bruce Lee. Had a terrific musical score. I thought Lauren Holly was really good in this movie. Their pairing and their their, their uh, chemistry was excellent on screen. Uh, I am a big fan of the, of this film, and obviously since the first movie I took my wife to, I have a lot of memories of it. Another movie I took my wife to see. We went to New York on Memorial Day weekend to see of '93, and that would be Cliffhanger with Sylvester Stallone which I think is his best action movie, non, uh, take away the Rocky and the Rambo films. This is his best action movie, directed by Remy Holland. To me, one of the great underrated action directors of all time, Holland, who did Die Hard 2 and Long Kiss Goodnight. Also, uh, he knows how to direct action, also Deep Blue Sea. I love Cliffhanger. Uh, I just love the setting. Uh, they did some dangerous stunt work. I love the, the winter setting of this movie. It's exciting, has good villains. Uh, John Lithgow is the main one. But uh, Janine Turner, her chemistry with Stallone in this movie is quite good. Uh, I am a big fan and, again, have big memories of going to New York City. I actually stayed, uh, me and my wife, when she was my girlfriend, we stayed at the Hilton, Ken, uh, in a suite. And when I got the bill, I almost had buyer's remorse. But uh, it worked out okay. My number seven would be Dave. I, I love this movie. And I got one thing I'm going to say about Dave... I love Kevin Klein. I wish they made movies like this again. To me, this is a movie that they don't make anymore, and they need to. Uh, it makes you feel good. Good story. His chemistry with Sigourney Weaver is good. 
Uh, it's very interesting, the politics of this movie and the ultimate message of let's just do the right thing for a fellow man. So I like that movie again a lot. And Charles Golden, really good in the supporting role. My number six, I went with A Bronx Tale, uh, directed by uh, Robert De Niro, starring Robert De Niro and Chaz Palminteri, based on his off-Broadway play. Uh, this is a good, really good mob movie, very well made. And what's really cool about it is De Niro doesn't play the mobster. He plays the regular guy who doesn't like the mob. That's why I like this movie a lot. So Bronx Tale would be my number six. All right, my number five. I, I did another Grisham, and it's funny because you want you read Grisham novels and you you watch Grisham movies. You say well, lawyers don't do that, but Grisham's a lawyer, which really always confused me. But in this one, a law student writes a brief. It's uh, speculating on how two Supreme Court justices were murdered. But that's not what a legal brief is. It's on legal briefs on the law. It's not a development of facts. It really wouldn't be more like that's more like a, a, a DA's uh, information uh, that, 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 that it would be. But that's okay. It doesn't have to be technically legally correct. It's a good action and a good espionage and a good thriller movie. It's got Julia Roberts. It's got Denzel Washington as a newspaper reporter. Uh, mm -hmm. It is, of course, the Pelican Brief from 1993. Again, I don't like it as a legal movie because it doesn't really reflect what we do as lawyers, but it was very good as a thriller. And so the Pelican Brief is my number five. Uh, it's, it's a good pick. I, I, I don't, I like that we all love it, so it's not, it wouldn't be on my top 20, but it, it's a good pick. My number five, I went with In the Line of Fire, directed by the late Wolfgang Peterson, starring Clint Eastwood and Rene Russo. Um, John Malkovich played the villain, great villain in this movie. To me, this is a perfect film. And it, it's Eastwood at the right age. He's starting to get a tweak older, but he's still, uh, for the most part, in his in his prime of movie stardom. Uh, it, it, it's just a really good movie. Eastwood plays an FBI agent uh, hunting this, uh, this, this madman played by Malkovich, uh, his chemistry with Rene Russo, I think is really good. This is a, a top-notch entertainment. It was a big hit at the box office. One of my all-time favorite Eastwood movies, easily. And Wolfgang Peterson, a very interesting director, did a lot of good work, Perfect Storm. Uh, he wound up doing Poseidon, which was his last uh, big studio film. But I love In the Line of Fire. That's my number five, Ken. Is, are there any really mad men who are better at being mad men than Malkovich? Yeah, he's really good. And the interesting thing about John Malkovich, Ken, is he's one of these actors now who's doing a lot of this direct to Walmart bin uh, DVD fare for a, for a paycheck. I, I don't get it, but that's the direction some of these uh, representatives and their agents have taken him down for an easy paycheck. But terrific actor, great villain, great villain in this movie. My number four, and I know this one is not going to be on your list, but we had waited a while for a good Mel Brooks movie. Uh, after uh, you know, after his golden age, if you will, it was actually the first movie that Mel Brooks was ever in of his own movies where he did not have a, uh, a role that got a uh, that got a, a top billing. Um, he because he played a bit part. He, do, he was doing the the Hitchcock in this one, if you will. Uh, Carrie Yules and Robin Hood Men in Tights. I love silly Mel Brooks movies. I went to see this when we hadn't had Mel Brooks for a while. 
And it wasn't a great movie, but it was fun if you like movies that poke fun at other movies. And it really did poke fun at Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. But so it was Robin Hood, Men in Tights in 1993. It was my number, well, they're all 1993, but that was my number four for that year. Has a lot of entertainment value, no doubt, but not on my uh, top 10. My number four, I went with Miss Doubtfire uh, with Robin Williams, one of his definitive movies. Uh, you could say Some Like It Hot, Tootsie, and then Miss Doubtfire about guys in drags, three of the best. Uh, what I like about this movie a lot is that, this, 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 besides the fact it's extremely funny, it's also very heartfelt and it deals with some serious issues in terms of marriage and the breakup of marriage and what it does to children. Uh, and his, his banter with, with Sally Field in this movie is extremely good. This is Robin Williams at his absolute best, directed by uh, Chris Columbus. It was a big box of his hit. It deserved to be, but not only funny, hilariously funny at times, but very poignant uh, and a good combination. There was a reason this movie was a hit. Uh, it was just uh, a really good movie, so that's my number four. What were the three movies you had for the best movies of Men in Drag? It was uh, Some Like It Hot, Okay. Tootsie, okay. Miss Doubtfire. You missed the number one, Psycho. What is it? Tell me. Psycho. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's true, though. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't disagree. All right, Mike, what am I up to, number four here? Or number three? I can lose track. We're up to number three. Number three. Good chance this is on your list as well. We've talked about it many times. Harrison Ford was the was a great supporting actor, even though he got lead actor billing. Tommy Lee Jones was a great lead actor, even though he's a supporting actor. It's hard a lot of times to take iconic television season, television series even though The Fugitive was a limited-run television series in its day. But it's and, so iconic. And give it a new twist. Give it a new focus. And, of course, this focus isn't as much on Harrison Ford as Richard Kimball trying to prove his innocence as it is It is telling the story of Javert and Jean Valjean from Les Miserables, where... You have the cop who is totally laser-focused on, I don't care if you're innocent, one of his great lines, I don't care, and doesn't really want to put any kind of emotion or justice into it, that's for the system. And Richard Kimball, who's unjustly uh, accused. And that, that dichotomy between those two characters is what made that a great movie. I love The Fugitive then. It's a movie I can watch again. So my number three was The Fugitive. Good pick. Not on my top ten, but it's obviously uh, a good pick. You know, and we've talked about this on the program before, me and Mike. You know, what is the best translated, uh, what, what was a TV show then into a feature? There was a big trend back in the 90s doing this stuff. Flintstones was one. Not, not so good. But the, the Untouchables, to me, in the 80s, is one of the greatest movies of all time. That translated brilliantly, directed by Brian De Palma on the big screen, but The Fugitive is another one that works extremely well. My number three, I went with Falling Down, directed by Joel Schumacher, who did a great job in this movie story, Michael Douglas. This is a tale of two characters, uh, with two stories who intertwine in the last act. One is, is, uh, is, is the defense character, that's the only name he goes by, played by Michael Douglas, a guy who sort of snaps because things are going wrong in his life. 
uh, he's sort of an anti-hero in this movie. Very interesting journey, great performance by Michael Douglas. And the other character in this movie that's equally as interesting is the character, police character played by Robert Duval, his last day before retiring, who gets involved in, in this uh, interesting day on a hot day in Los Angeles. Uh, I just found this movie really interesting. What I do find is interesting as I get a little older is this, is this storyline in this movie of Robert Duval's wife played by Tuesday Wells. And she, when, you, when I first saw this in 93, I was like, my God, like how could he stay married to this woman? She's just like, like so so overbearing and, and almost like off-center. But then you start to realize, get a little older, like the plight he went through, she obviously had some issues in her life and he loved her, he was married to her, and he stayed with her. I thought that aspect of the film was very interesting, but the Michael Douglas character is, is super interesting. This is one of the best films, in my opinion, of the 90s. It's my number three from 93, Falling Down. Uh, I am a big fan of this movie. And then, of course, the sequel, Getting Up, was pretty good as well, but that's... Uh... No, they I don't didn't do that. One, but, but I don't recall that one, but I'll take your word for okay, it. Okay, well, this next one, <laughs> yeah, yeah, this next one's a, it's actually a uh, story about a, um, a DJ in uh, Seattle who does a, a radio sh- a show once a week that they record at 7.30 in the morning. And so the title, of course, is Sleepless in Seattle. That's just, I'm just saying that because we record this show at 7.30 in the morning. And so for me, that means being sleepless. But to me, Sleepless in Seattle was one is one of the best rom-coms of all time. Uh, Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. I like it almost as much as Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan. I'm still a bigger fan of uh, of, of Ryan and uh, and Crystal. But you know that those kind of things happen. It's, it really is a slight remake of An Affair to Remember or The Love Affair. But great movie, funny movie. It's 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 fun. It's as a rom com as often. It's not slapstick humor, and there's some sadness in it. But still, to me, a very good movie, and one of those ones that made us feel good when the little boy left his bear up on the uh, top of the Empire State Building and came back, and his father finally met Annie, and that look of hey, you're Annie. Like darn, I I hit the jackpot. I thought you were gonna have warts and be 600 pounds so sleepless in seattle was my number two uh okay good pick not on my top 10 but uh i, I see the divergence between tastes in me and you I-, I like that movie but not to where i would veer i'm putting it on a top 10 list my number two one of the great sports movies of all time one of my all-time favorite movies i go i watch this probably watch this movie twice a year it would be rudy me and mike have talked this, about this movie so many times the rudy rudiker story uh directed by uh, David Onspach, who also directed and wrote Hoosiers. He didn't do a lot of body of work, uh, uh, Onspach, but think about this, Ken. Hoosiers and Rudy, holy smoke, what a sports film legacy. John, uh, Sean Astin, born to play Rudy Rudiger, uh, couldn't be more likable or connectable to the general audience. Uh, big fan favorite, very inspirational, leads up to one single moment of him walking onto a practice field. Uh, I mean, and then to uh, not only the two great pinnacle moments, him walking onto a practice field and then him getting into a game in the last couple minutes of a Notre Dame game. Uh, I think Ned Beatty, who played his father, as great as he was in his career, never did better work than playing the father of Sean Astin's Rudiger in this movie. Uh, Great script, great appealing actors, great story. Rudy, 
And he was a graduate of the University of Notre Dame de Duloc from law school. That wasn't on my list, but uh, it is a good movie. My, my number one, and hey, we don't always diverge. We, we did a movie about divorce and family and coping with divorce. We did it as a comedy. And we did something that I'm not sure we had seen before because we're used to things like the parent trap and stuff like that. But in this movie, yeah, they get back together in a sense because she lets them have she lets them have more time with the kids at the end, but they don't get to be, get back together as a romantic couple, which is what he really wants, I think, in it. But you had Mrs. Doubtfire. I have Mrs. Doubtfire. It worked on all levels. For my young kids that I saw it with, they laughed. They thought it was funny. For me, having done this twice and being a divorce lawyer, it does get some of the pain and the issues right. And most importantly, the writers avoided that trap of making it all rosy and we're going to work this out at the end. So on a lot of levels, Mrs. Doubtfire was my favorite movie of 1993. Now, I know you're going to tell us the best movie of 1993, and I agree. Uh, well, I went with Jurassic Park. Like, okay, I disagree. Where's Schindler's List? Huh? Schindler's List? It's not on my top ten, simply because really? of this. Yeah, because it's not a movie that I rewatch all the time. Okay, So okay. I, I did it as a favorite. Listen, I mean, obviously it's a great movie. Uh, it's a landmark movie, but it's not a movie that I perennially watch uh, more than once every probably five, five years plus. So I didn't put it on my top ten. Okay. I went with Jurassic Park because, as I stated many times on this program, the greatest movie-going experience I ever had and Mike Rags had was we drove from Strasburg, Pennsylvania in his little yellow Miata back in the day. We were playing the John Williams theme song soundtrack the whole time. Arrive in New York City, check into the Hilton Hotel on 50, I think 57th Street, go to the 4 o'clock show, sold out 1,150 people. To me, a memory in the bank that I'll never forget. The movie delivered in spades. It was groundbreaking. This is a movie that's called, that had, when you first see the dinosaurs, a sense of wonder that you get a few times in your movie-going lifetime, and this had it. It was groundbreaking in effects. They were working on technology. The spiel was shooting Sinulzist and Jurassic Park at the same time. He was getting dailies, and, and they, they were blown away by what, the computer graphics were able to do it because they didn't think it was able to, they were able to do anything uh, of, of what they wound up in the final product. It was just groundbreaking as they filmed. Uh, Sam Neill uh, was great casting is Dr. Alan Grant. I loved him. Jeff Goldblum is Ian Malcolm. Lord Dern. Uh, Richard Attenborough was, is iconic. Uh, is John Hammond. This movie delivered in spades. We went back to the midnight show the same night. Uh, amazing. The one thing I would say, and I talked about this before, the one big surprise that I got that night is when me and Mike went back to the hotel room, and uh, I guess he was getting into his pajamas. He took his shirt off. He had the hairiest chest I've ever seen, Ken. Like, I'm talking like gorilla hair on his chest. That, that hairy. Okay. I, just wanted to point, I just wanted to point that out. Yeah, I, I love I, Jurassic Park, so it's my number one. And, and folks, you know, we're not going to question Chuck at all. We've heard today about stories about his hotel stays with Mike and with his future wife. And <laughs> it's, it's all right with us, Chuck. We are an inclusive show. No, I understand. I get it. Okay, to the Wolo audience, thanks for listening. To the general audience, thanks for listening. And to the audience at... Cool 98.5.
Thanks for listening to Movie Maniacs. Download one of our archived episodes. Be sure to subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. by Federated Media.